you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, you can turn to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and the title of our lesson this morning is The Rebellion at Babel. The Rebellion at Babel. Now, some of you, they are, let's see, we started this back in January, here we are in August, so we're in our eighth month. And you might remember about eight months ago when we first started talking about Genesis, we said that it was divided really into two sections, that chapters 1 through 11 kind of make up one section, and then chapters 12 through 50 make up another. And, and so we're coming today to the end of section 1, and this section, uh, 1 through 11, has really been all about origins. If you think back to the first chapter, it's about the origins of of the universe, of space and time and matter. It's about the origins of life. We've seen the origins of cities and marriage and family, of culture, of working with metals, of poetry, of music, of animal husbandry. I mean, the list just goes on and on. We've seen the origins of sin and guilt and forgiveness and redemption. And then last week and in this, this week in chapter 11, we, begin, we see the origins of nations and the origins of languages. But after chapter 11, after this chapter, Genesis is going to change, okay? Um, Chapter 11 kind of serves as a pivot point for the book. So everything before this chapter is all about origins. Everything after this chapter, it changes. You see, today we're going to see what caused the dispersal of nations across the planet. And out of this uh, dispersal, one nation is going to rise to the top. One nation is going to become the focus of not only Genesis, but the focus of God's attention. So as we move into chapter 12, we won't do that next week, but the week after, everything turns to Israel. Everything comes to be about the formation of Israel, how Israel came into being, and really Israel's role in the redemptive plan of God. So we'll be uh, turning to that in, in a couple of weeks. But today we kind of, again, chapter 11 is kind of that pivot point that changes from origins over to the nation of Israel and how all this came uh, about. Now this, we're going to look at nine verses today, really, really interesting verses. I, I did it in one lesson, but I was hard-pressed to get it all in there because there's so much here. Uh, there's nine verses. The first four verses are about what man did The second uh, five verses are about what God did in response. So let's begin in in verse 1, Genesis 11. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, you might read that and and that might sound a little redundant. Like, why would he say that? Why would you say you got the same language and the same words? Isn't that the same thing? Well, it's not the same thing. Language actually means language. The same words means language. They have the same vocabulary. Let me give an example of this. For example, uh, if you look at the countries today, United States and England and Australia and Scotland and New Zealand, we all speak the same language, right? Which is what? English, but we don't have the same vocabulary. Right? I've got some uh, friends of mine that work for my company. I've got one in Australia and another one in, in the UK, and, and I'll talk to them sometimes, and they'll say things i got no idea what they just said. And we're speaking English but they're using phrases and things, and I, the same thing with me. I'll say something, they'll say, can you repeat that in, in, in the King's English? They'll say that to me sometimes, right? So, so you can both speak English, but you can have different 
vocabularies. But what Moses is saying here is that's not the case. Not only are they speaking the same language, they have the same words, they have the same vocabulary. Okay, so there, there's... And his, you may say, well, what's the point? The point is there is no barrier to communication. None at all. You can't say, well, I know we speak the same language, but we misunderstood one another. No, you can't say that. They have the same language and the same vocabulary. So there are no barriers to communication. Therefore, there are no barriers to unity. The Hebrew literally says they had one lip and one set of words, one language and one set of, of words. Look at verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, a plain, as we know, is a large area of flat ground, right? That's what a plain is. It's a large area of flat ground. Now, I don't know how well you guys can see the map. I used this map a couple weeks ago, and I, we know that the ark landed, the Bible tells us, in the mountains of Ararat. And we know where that is today. That's in far... Uh, eastern Turkey. It's still there today, obviously. And, I, and, and a couple weeks ago, I said, well, the Tower of Babel would, would be a little uh, southwest of there. Now, if I actually zoom in there a little bit, I actually went out to Google Earth and got this map for you. If you look at where the mountains of Ararat are, I don't know how well y'all can see that, but it is super mountainy in Turkey. I mean, it's all up there. It's mountains, uh, even into northern Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and into northern Iran. It's very, very mountainy. But if you come from the east, if you kind of move to the southwest, you eventually get into northeast, to modern-day northeast Syria, uh, to, to northern Iraq. And that area there is called the Mesopotamian Valley. It's a very fertile valley, and uh, even secular scholars will tell you that's the cradle of civilization. They've done enough archaeological digs that they, everybody agrees that's the cradle of civilization. So when the Bible talks about the land of Shinar, that's what it's talking about. They came down out of the mountains, and eventually they came into this very fertile area there. It's very uh, large, very flat, and they settled there in the land of, of Shinar. They've got one, now they're all in one place. They've all got one language, and you have to remember they got one leader. Remember back last week in verse uh, chapter 10, when it's going through the genealogy, it says, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. So he begins to develop this land. So here we are. You've got this guy Nimrod who, who kind of leads all these people out of the mountains. They settle out here in this, in this Mesopotamian valley, and he's got this kingdom that begins with this city called Babel. And he's building other cities, but it starts here. And so he's, he's building an empire. He's building a kingdom in this land of Shinar. By the way, hundreds of years later, you'll get to the book of Daniel. And you'll read this, Daniel 1, 1 through 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought him to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. See, Babel eventually becomes Babylon. The kingdom of Nimrod eventually becomes the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. So see, Nebuchadnezzar, they all were in that area right there. And so hundreds of years later, you've still got this kingdom going on, right? So eventually, uh, Nimrod, you know, down the line, hands it over to, to Nebuchadnezzar. So here they all are. They're settled in one place. They've all speaking the same language. There's no misunderstanding. They're using the same words. They're united under one leader. 
in one kingdom. So what's on their mind to do? Well, look at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, and let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen is like an asphalt or a tar. Now, here, right here on display, this is a simple statement, but it just puts on display the ingenuity and the intelligence of, of, of mankind. Then as now, by the way, there's plenty of clay in that area for, for brick making. Also, there's pools of asphalt that kind of pool up. Obviously, those countries are well known for what? For oil production, right? It's, it's closer to the surface there than it is just about anywhere else in the world. And so there, today, even by the Dead Sea and areas, there's places of, of asphalt or, or tar that'll just kind of bubble up to the top of the ground. So they figured out how to take the clay. And of course, they probably watched it. You know, if you see clay when it rains, it's moldy and, and slick, and then it sits in the sun, and what happens? It gets hard, right? So they figured out, well, why don't we just, we, if we take that and make them into little rectangles and, and, uh, and, and, and we can put them in a kiln and burn them, we can make brick and we can use this asphalt over here because it's real sticky. We'll use that for, for mortar. Now, you may say, well, why brick instead of stone? Well, it could be that there was no stone in that area suitable but anybody that's ever done masonry work knows stone is very difficult to work with, right? Because you got to chisel it and get it to fit. Bricks, if you can build bricks in just the same shape every single time, it's much easier, right? And isn't it incredible that here we are thousands of years later and we're still doing the same thing? It's just incredible to me. We think these guys were cavemen. They're not cavemen. These are smart, smart people. And they figured this out from nothing. Right? Let's make brick. And so what, that's what he's pointing out here is how smart they were, how, how ingenious they were for, for figuring things out and, and doing things with them. Whatever the reason they decided to make brick, once again, it just shows us the difference between men and animals. Right? How ingenious, how intelligent they are. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we tend to use our ingenuity for the wrong reasons. And we've seen that even today, right? Look at verse 4. And then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Notice, let's build a city for who? For us. This isn't a city for God. It's not for His name, not for His glory. It's not being built in His honor. Let's do it for ourselves. So this is the first city of man being built after the flood, and it's not only built by man, it's built of man and for man. God's not even in the picture here. Now, I want to show you three things in this verse, and this is really the key verse uh, when it comes here to what men do. I want to show you three things in this verse. I want to show you rebellion, I want to show you idolatry, and I want to show you pride. Rebellion, idolatry, and pride. There's three phrases in that verse. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city. That's rebellion. And let's build ourselves a tower. That's idolatry. And let's make a name for ourselves. That's pride. And I want to show you these three. The first one is a city. Now, you may say, well, why is that rebellion? Well, let's go back to Genesis 9-1. Noah and his sons walk off the ark, and God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. What does fill the earth mean? It means scatter, go, fill the earth. But look at Genesis 11:4. Let's build ourselves a city lest we be 
dispersed. God said, fill the earth, and they said, we're not going anywhere. We're going to build a city right here. We don't want to fill the earth. We don't want to be scattered. This is just outright rebellion. Okay, Remember Cain, way back when, when God says, you're going to be a wonder, first thing he did is he says, I'm going to build a what? Build a city. I'm not going anywhere. See, again, this is just the rebellion of Cain all over again. A tower is idolatry. Now, we're all probably familiar with this story, the Tower of Babel. If I just, if we never come to this point, I could just say, tell me about the Tower of Babel, and you would, everybody knows it. Even people out in the world kind of know this story. But have you ever asked yourself, what's the point of a tower? Why would they be building a, a tower? You see, most of the time in a city, a tower is built for, uh, for looking out for attacks. It's a high point where you can look and see your enemy coming. It's also a place where you can, like, you know, pour down hot oil or shoot arrows down from a high point. That's not the point of this tower. See, there's no enemies to look for because there are no enemies, right? They're one people. They're all speaking the same language. They're all under, united under one leader. They're all in the same place. There's no enemies. There's no attacks coming. So what's the point of this tower? Well, a hint is actually found in the verse. It says, let's build a tower with its top to the heavens. You see, the purpose of this tower is all about making a connection to the gods. What this shows us is they've already fallen into false idolatry. By the way, you may think, well, how much time has gone by? Would it surprise you to know that we're probably about 100 years after the flood? A hundred years. That's it. We're not talking about thousands of years. We're talking about a century has gone by, and they're already trying to build a tower to connect to their, their false gods. This tower, by the way, like I said, that, that Mesopotamian valley, the land of Shinar, it's a very well-known place. Archaeologists have done a lot of different digs over there. And what they found is this tower became a very common uh, 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 place of worship or a very common uh, uh, subject in the, in the Mesopotamian Valley. It's called a ziggurat. That's the name of it. And, 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 and all these different digs they've done, they've uncovered probably about 30 to 50 of these ziggurats in these ancient cities. This is what it actually looked like. When we think a tower, it's not like the, the, the Eiffel Tower. It's not like a cell tower. It just doesn't go straight up. It, it's these series of different bases that go higher and higher and higher up. I read one website that said this, ziggurats are structures that are made of raised platforms that lead up to a holy place on top of them. These structures were built high to show the wealth of the ruler and also showed praise to their gods. One of the main purposes of the ziggurats was for the people to get closer to the gods. People may have believed that having these temples would allow them access to the heavens because of the steps and the ramps that lead upward. There were also rooms throughout the ziggurats that held pieces of artwork representing different gods. By the way, if you go to Iran today, there's actually a standing ziggurat. It's not, of course, not as tall uh, as it was in the 13th century B.C. when it was actually built, but that's the, the Chokazanbil ziggurat over there. By the way, it's built completely of brick. Every, everything in it is, is nothing but absolute brick. So the worship of false gods has already been introduced to this empire that Nimrod is building. Maybe, remember, uh, Nimrod's name means to rebel. 
I mean, he don't want anything to do with God. And so maybe it's he that introduces. He knows there's, a, there's always going to be a gap. When people leave the real God, there's always going to be a gap that you need to fill. And so maybe he introduced this uh, into the vacuum uh, because they're not worshiping the true God. By the way, as we move down through the Bible, the Bible will always connect idolatry and false worship back to Babel. As you get to Revelation 17.5, you see this, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Babylon is the center of idolatry. That land of Shinar, that Mesopotamian valley, is the center of false gods and false worship. And, and the Bible will always connect it back. Babylon itself becomes synonymous with idolatry and, and false worship. Finally, they said, let's build a city, that's rebellion. Let's build a tower, that's idolatry. And finally, they say, let's build, let's make a name for ourselves, and that's pride. There, there's no mention here, no concern for God's name. No mention of spreading His glory and His honor. Instead, let's make a name for myself. I mean, that is the very epitome of pride and, and ubris. Um, uh, a couple, of three weeks ago, I had to do an interview for something up at Wave 94, and, and that Doug Apple guy, how many of y'all know him? His, his, he's asking me, when I met him, I'm like, yep, I know you, man, I know your voice. So he's asking me a question, and, and, and in this interview, this, some, I just said something. I don't even know where it came from, but I was talking about uh, having a name, and, and we just found out that we're going to uh, have another uh, grandchild, and it turned out to be a girl. And I was thinking about that one day, uh, driving down the road, that as men... We, we kind of want a boy, right, to carry on our what? Our name. And it just hit me that that is so worldly thinking. That, uh, you know, men want to make name for themselves. They want to carry on their name. But Christians, we, we should want to make a name for the one whose name is above every other name. Right? It's not about carrying on gray. It's about carrying on the name of Jesus. And that can be done with boys and girls. It's about raising children and grandchildren that carry on the name of Christ. That's what it should be all about for us, not carrying on our name. And, and in fact, Philippians 2, 9 and 10, that's what Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name. Are we? See, they're concerned with their name. We should be concerned with God's name. Am I doing everything in my power to honor His name, to glorify His name, to build His name, to carry on, on His name. They were not doing that. Now, let's see what God did. Look at verse 5. And I love this verse. I love this verse. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, a lot of people are bothered by that verse. That bothers a lot of people. Because it seems to imply that God is somehow nearsighted, right? He can see things close to him, but he can't quite figure out what's going down there on earth. Let's go down and see what them people are doing. Now, I see a lot of activity. I can't quite make it out. But let's, all, let's go down there, right? So it's got the idea that, that somehow God doesn't know what's going on, that he has to actually come down to earth, and that bothers people, okay? Now, to understand this statement, though, you need to remember this is written in Hebrew. And Hebrew is a very, it's a language that when, when people write in Hebrew, they, they use a lot of very skillful literary devices. They use, for example, a lot of poetry when you write in Hebrew. Another thing that they do in Hebrew 
is they use word plays or play on words. And this is an example of one of those things. You see, in verse 4, men are building this great tower to reach up to God, right? And at the end, God has to come down to see the tower. All right? You see, that's the play on words. What, what the writer, what Moses is saying is no matter how far men reach up, no matter how far they go, God will always have to come down to see what you're doing. That's how far... Everybody see the word play there? It's not saying that God doesn't know what's happening. It's a, it's a word play. Later on, Paul will say something like this in 1 Corinthians one twenty five: For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The very lowest God can go is always going to be higher than anything you can build. That's the word play here. That's what the, the writer of Hebrew is trying to, to get across. And I, and I love that. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all got one language. And this is, now, this is the key to this verse. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, this part of the story has always kind of stumped me. What is it exactly that the Lord is afraid is going to happen? What, what exactly is it that God says, man... They're going to do anything they want to do. Nothing is going to be held back. Is he, is he afraid we're going to build a, a rocket ship and go to Mars? Is he afraid we're going to discover DNA? Is he, what's, he, what's going on here? What is it that he is so concerned with what might happen? Well, here's the thing. At this point, what you have to understand, one language, one people, one place, one leader, they are in perfect unity but there is a dark side to unity. Okay, We talk about unity a lot in the brotherhood and in the church, but there's always a dark side to unity. And the reason is that is because people are sinful and rebellious and idolatrous and wicked. And when you take a bunch of sinful, idolatrous, rebellious, wicked people and you unify them, bad things happen. Bad things happen. See, when you unify sinful people, it exacerbates the evil that they can do. It exacerbates the, the, the wickedness that they can accomplish. We say it all the time. Power corrupts, right? Ultimate power corrupts ultimately. You always got to have checks and balances in place because people are inherently bad. And see, God knows this, and it's unacceptable to Him. I, I, I'll give you, a, 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 again... Evil people, all speaking the same language, all in one place, they lack any kind of checks and balances against that evil. There's no constraints to hold them back. Let me give you an example. In the 30s and 40s, Hitler wants to take over the world, right? And he had a powerful nation united behind him. Did he not? And by the way, he was almost successful. But he wasn't. Why? Because other nations rose up and stopped him. But what if everybody would have got on his side? What if everybody would have united together with him? Can you imagine what we'd be living under today? You see, what you need to understand, and I'm not saying wars are good things. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am telling you is this. The checks and balances system that God has put in place with different nations is a grace of God. It's a, Because when you get evil people and you get them united, bad things happen. Bad things happen. I want to give you an example. There's a book out there. It's called Neighbors. And it's a secular book. It's not a, it's not a Christian book, but it's a really interesting book. 
it's, uh, it's called Neighbors. The, 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 the subtitle of the book is The Destruction of the Jewish Community in Jebwadne, Poland. It's written by a guy by the name of Jan Goss, who is a sociologist. Now, the, the book is a study in, in what happened in this city. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, first about uh, Jan Goss and these kind of guys. You see, sociologists today are very evolutionary-minded. And they believe that, everybody know what a sociologist is, right? It's a person that studies social structures and cultures and, 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 and social aspects of, of the world. And they're very evolutionary-minded, right? So they believe that people are evolving and they're getting better and better and better and better, right? That, that's just what they believe. That's a foundational to their, whole, to their whole science. By the way, it's called progressivism. See, people out there today that are letting anything go and, and, and homosexuals get married, they're called progressives because in their mind, you're old-fashioned. You haven't progressed the way they have. See, they believe that people are getting better and better. And this guy that wrote this book believes that too, that he's an he's a evolutionary-minded sociologist, so he believes people are getting better. So when human beings who are getting better and better, they do something bad, there has to be a reason for that. Something made them do it. Maybe they got brainwashed by somebody, or maybe they were in a desperate situation. But when you see people do really bad things, sociologists believe it has to be something outside of them makes them do it because, after all, people are good. Everybody with me so far, right? See, this is how they explain the Holocaust. You got German people, good German people, and they massacre six million Jews. Why? Because the, the Nazis brainwashed them. They just brainwashed them. See, that's, their, that's how they explain the Holocaust. They, it's not because people are bad. It's because they must have been brainwashed. The problem is they keep running up against situations that they can't explain. And Jebwabne, Poland is one of these examples. In 1939, for those of you that are familiar with World War II, um, Hitler, Hitler wanted, uh, he wanted to take over the world and he wanted a buffer between him and Russia. He didn't want, a, he didn't want a, a war on his eastern front, so he wanted uh, to create a buffer between him and Russia. So what he did, he invaded Poland and he split Poland up. He annexed the, uh, the eastern half to, to Russia, and he took the, the western half, so they had a little, little buffer. And this town of Jebwabne, Poland, was on the Russian side. It was on the eastern side. So, so for two years, from 1939 to 1941, they're under the control of the, of the Russians. They, they never met a Nazi. Nazis aren't there. They, they've never met them. There are 3,000 people living in that town, 1,400 are Gentiles, 1,600 are Jews. And the Jews had lived in that town for 300 years. They had worked alongside the non-Jews. They had farmed alongside the non-Jews. They had gone to school uh, with the non-Jews. And everybody was getting along fine for, for 300 years. And then, for, as I said, for two years, after Hitler takes over Poland, he gives that, that town or that, in that eastern half, he gives that to Russia. Everything's going along fine. On June 22nd of 1941, Hitler changed his mind. He broke his truce with, with Russia. So he sweeps back through Poland and he takes over the eastern half of Poland and he takes over the town of Jebwabne. On July 10th, 18 days later, 18 days after the Nazis come in, the Gentiles went on a killing spree. The ones they couldn't stab with pitchforks, the ones they couldn't uh, behead with an axe, they just herded them all into barns and burned them to death. 1,600 Jews killed in one day. 
not two weeks, not three weeks, not a month, one day, they killed 1,600 Jews in that town. And see, the, the sociologists, they can't explain that. Because you can't say they were brainwashed because the Nazis were only there for 18 days. You're not going to be brainwashed in 18 days. There's no propaganda. There's nothing like that. So that the question becomes, why did this happen? See, history records that not one of those Jews was killed by a German soldier. Every single one of them was killed by a neighbor, which is the, the, the title of the book. And the sociologists in the book are saying, why? Why did this happen? Well, let me tell you why it happened. See, the Germans just gave them permission to do what they already wanted to do. That's why it happened. The Germans gave them permission, just go do what's already in your heart. See, listen listen real quickly. This is the Bible's description. The world says we're getting better and better and better and better. It's called progressivism. This is what the Bible says, Romans 3, 10 through 18. There's none righteous, not a single one. Nobody seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and their feet are uh, swift to shed blood. That's the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition. No matter what sociologists say, the Bible says that's who we are. You see, all it takes in this world to create a world where where people massacre one another is just to have a government that says it's okay. That's all it takes. Just have a unified government that says it's... Listen, the fact is most people don't do what they want to do because there's a checks and balances in place. They know they'll get in trouble. Everybody with me? It kind of holds them back. But when the government steps in and says, oh, when the government steps in and says that's okay, they just go do what they, they want to do. You see, Jeb Wabney is a testimony to the wretchedness of the human heart. You see, what God knows is this. A unified people unified in evil, is going to escalate the bad things that they're going to do. By the way, God knows that, and so does Satan. Which is why Satan is working so hard in this world to get us back to a one world, one government, one religion system ruled by a man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. And, and the horrors that are going to occur under that unified system of world government are documented in Revelation. It, it just takes one, one world saying those things are okay and people will massacre one another. See, God understood at the Tower of Babel, He understood the danger of a unified people, an evil, wicked people unified. He knows that when He says they're not, the, the things they're going to accomplish, He's not talking about good things. He's talking about bad things. This, this, this world's going to go bad in a hurry. So He does something about it. It's very simple thing that he does, but it also has very far-reaching effects. Verse 7, he says, come let us go down. And once again, there's the word play. They built this high tower. Now I got to go down, right? Because I don't care how high they go, I've got to go down. Let's go down and let's confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Now, can you imagine this? Would, I would think this would make a great movie, wouldn't you? They're all, you're out there working on this construction project. You're all building. You're talking to one another. You're looking at a set of plans. You're giving each other directions. You need to do this. We need to do this. And all of a sudden, words start coming out of your mouth you've never heard before. And the words start coming out of their mouth that, you, that they've never heard before. You can't understand anything they're saying. They can't understand anything. You, what would you do? Well, first thing you'd do is you'd panic. 
mean, people would panic, and you'd go look for people that understood you, wouldn't you? You know, you'd start talking, you'd be going to people, you know, just saying these words. You can understand what you're saying, but nobody else can. So you, you would find people that are like you. You'd find people that can understand you. And people out of fear and anxiety would, would just congregate in groups. By the way, we do this today. If somebody from Albania moves to America, what's the first thing they look for? They look for other Albanians. They look for people that speak their language, that have a history, a culture like they do. That's just, it's just a natural thing that we do. And that's what would happen. They would automatically congregate in groups of people that spoke similar uh, languages. Verses 8 through 9. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. How long this took, we don't know. Um, did, did God disperse them? Did he just let nature take its course? And they, you know, now that I can't understand them, people, I want to get as far away from them as I can. Did, you know, did he just let nature take its course? Did he somehow intervene and supernaturally disperse them? We don't know. Whatever happened, we do know they left off building the city. Whatever they were doing, they stopped because they couldn't communicate with one another anymore to get the, uh, to get the work done. I want to close with this. this. This passage has got so many... You could preach multiple uh, messages off of this because it's got everything in it. It's got all kind of stuff in here about God. It's got all kind of stuff in here about men. It's got all kind of stuff about just different things. And I thought just real quickly, what does this passage teach us? I'm going to give you five things. Number one, God is sovereign. That, that passage, God came down. Listen, God's purpose is don't you worry. God's purposes are always going to be accomplished. I don't care what men do. You cannot change God's plans and purposes. He will do exactly what he wants to do. I, I ran across uh, another study I was doing. I ran across something back in 1982 that I caught my eye, and I, I made a note of it, and kind of, and I went back to it. In 1982, the, the Catholic bishops drafted, this was back during the uh, kind of the the nuclear arms race and all this. So the Catholic bishops uh, uh, drafted a letter condemning U.S. policy, and they published it in the Newsweek, and it said this, Today the destructive potential of the nuclear powers threaten the sovereignty of God over the world he has brought into being. And I remember thinking, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. That is the dumbest thing. Listen, stopping the sovereignty of God, you might as well stand on a, a track in front of a speeding train. It, it will run you over, and He will run you over. God it will always accomplish His plans and purposes. Don't you worry about that. You know, I don't care what that world's doing out there. I don't care how crazy it's getting. By the way, do you understand the same way the thing that happened in Job, Jebwabne, how the people got permission? Do you understand that's what's going on out there today? People, oh, you want to be some perverted, crazy person? Feel free. That's your truth. See, the government, culture has given them permission, and they're just going crazy. What held them back? There was always, culturally, there was checks and balances. They're not there anymore. They're not there anymore. And, 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 and the world seems to be unified in just giving people permission to do anything they want to do, and, that's, and it was always in their heart. It's always there. They didn't just wake up one day and, oh, I'm going to do something. No, it's always been there. But now they're getting permission. But none of that, by the way, none of that will ever, ever thwart the plans of God. Number two, unity can be dangerous. 
Unity can be dangerous. Derek Kidner says this, Unity and peace are not ultimate goods. Better division than collective apostasy. What he's saying is, is when you unify with evil, that's not a good thing. Unity for the sake of unity, when, 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 when evil gets together and unifies, bad things happen. And for us as Christians, unity is a huge thing for us internally, but we unify founded on the truth of God. That's the only unity that matters. Any unity that's not built on the truth of God is not a unity worth having. And in fact, it can be a dangerous unity if you want to know the truth. Number three, pride. God absolutely hates pride. You can see Proverbs 6 if you want to to, to read that. Because pride always sets itself against God. It always... In fact, pride is probably the root sin of all sins. It's just sitting there because it always sets you, I know better than he does. I'll do what I want to do. Therefore, humility should be probably one of the chief virtues of the Christian life. Are you humble? Is there pride? We should be always looking for areas of pride in our life that we need to get rid of. Number four, be careful how you build. God came down to inspect that city. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 3 says God will inspect your work and God will inspect my work. Is it clay? Is it stubble? Is it sticks? Or is it gold? What's the motive behind the things you're doing? Are you doing it to build a name for yourself, a legacy? Everybody look at me. Or am I doing it to build up the name that's above every other name? What's the motives behind what you're doing? Lastly, be careful of religion. See, religion always seeks God through works. Always seeks God. Look what I can do. Let's build this tower. Let's build this church. Let's build this this whatever it is. Let's, Let's build these works. And we'll reach up to God. So then we can boast. Look what I did, right? Paul says, I don't boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. Be careful of, of religion, okay? Because it's all about works where Christianity is all about um, faith. Next week, uh, we're going to turn to uh, verses 10 through 32. The title of the lesson is Paganism versus uh, Promise. And um, we'll finish up chapter 11. Let's pray. Father.